HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. All right, we're back again with another episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. Thanks again for tuning in, guys. We really appreciate it. This week I'm going to be riding solo on this episode and going to be talking to you about something that's pretty near and dear to me, and that is converting cropland or ag land into wildlife habitat. And there's, there's plenty of different ways and options out there of what you can do with your property and trying to make it better for wildlife, make it better for hunting. And there's a ton of opinions out there. And while uh, some of those opinions might have a lot of validity, I just want to try to give you guys some context and kind of let you understand my thought process, depending on what your goals are. You know, if you're trying to set something up for hunting whitetails, uh, which is what I'm most passionate about, but you're just trying to make good quality browse and cover, you can do it in a in a cropland field and convert it, and that's a fantastic thing. Uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this show, I want to get a shout out to all of our partners with this show and the people that make this show happen and one of them being Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania. So make sure if if you guys are looking for uh, a pro shop, if you're looking for a new pro shop or you you just want to check things out, you know, if you get into that Richland, Pennsylvania area, be sure to check out Little Mountain Outfitters. They're a fantastic pro shop that has all the lines of bows you can think of from Matthews and Prime, Bear, PSE, Expedition, Darton. And if you're not in the, the... if, if you're not looking for a compound, you're looking to settle in for a crossbow. We've also got Mission Crossbows and Ten Point, Wicked Ridge, Excalibur, Raven, and Bear. You've, you, you, you name it, he's got it. With that, we've also got Tethered Tree Saddle Dealer, uh, McKenzie and Big Shot Archery Targets. Not to mention also the only dealer on the East Coast that deals with Radix blinds and trail cameras. Check those out, guys. Uh, last but not least, you can't have to mention the, the dealer for being uh, Banks Blinds and Real World Food Plot Seed and Food Plot Installations. And if you're in the market for an e-bike, be sure to check out those Rambo 
bikes that he sells. It's a fantastic store. We got great service. Uh, Devon is a fantastic bowsmith, and we got unparalleled customer service there. Be sure to check them out, Little Mountain Outfitters. You can check them out on Facebook, and uh, I believe they got their website up and running, but all of his information pops up on Facebook, and uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you'll be pleased that you did. So getting into the show this week, I'm riding solo as you can tell. I am uh, so as we're as I'm recording this, I am sitting at the cabin. I got my feet propped up, kind of enjoying this peace and quiet that I've got right now. It's uh, it's amazing how little I get that now with uh, a two year old and a four week old at this point, and I love them to death. But man, this is just like man peaceful and i figured with that peace and quiet why not uh talk to you guys about something that's important and relevant to this time of year for uh private land so <clears throat> as we said before we're, we're talking about taking cropland active cropland and tra- uh, transforming that into something that is more wildlife friendly and you know, you've you've heard me on other episodes before, uh, and I'll say it again. I think private land, if you are not growing food plots, then you have just as good of an opportunity to hunt a you know a, a high quality, high caliber whitetail, have a great whitetail hunting experience. If you go out and look at public land. Pennsylvania, got, we got over 2 million acres of public land for anybody to say that they have nowhere to go hunting. They are kidding themselves. Now, I'm not saying that it's not going to involve some work, but let's face it, all good things come with a little bit of hard work and sweat equity. So we're talking about, you know, with food plots, they are a must-have in my opinion. I think you have to have a high-quality hunting strategy and a good quality food plot program to tie it together. And we've done other episodes about that. <clears throat> but I bring food plots up because right away, when you think about cropland, a lot of people just think, well, why not plant it in a food plot? And that might be a viable option depending on your cover and cover to food ratio, what the surrounding neighborhood is. But the, the thing you got to keep in mind is food plot implementation is expensive. And <clears throat> I'm very pro food plot, but you know, if you take a 5, 10, 15, 40 acre crop field and you turn it into food plot, uh, do you have the capability of making that a daytime food source? And do you also have the funds and the the, the time and everything else to invest into a food plot of that size and, and, and caliber? It's just a lot to go with. Um, I'm blown away how many people that have mixed properties of mixed ag, woodland, bottomland, whatever, but there's ag there. And they say, uh, I had this happen to me the other week. I was going to a property to kind of help somebody design food plots and, you know, talk about stand locations and stuff like that. And on my way there, I, I ran into a friend of mine, told him what I was doing. And he's like, well, what do you need to have that <clears throat> the food plots for when you got all that cropland? And <laughs> I... First of all, it's it's something that it's an easy thing to misconceive because you see deer in ag fields, right? And I'm not saying ag is completely bad for wildlife, but 
I, I think generally speaking, there are a lot of bad attributes about agriculture for wildlife, for whitetails, for small game. And I'm going to touch base on all those things and kind of give you why, why I think ag land and wildlife don't necessarily go together. Um, first of all, cropland and hunting. Cropland is rotating constantly from corn, soybeans, and hay, and wheat, and all kinds of small grains. And that inconsistent food source and type of food source and the timing of that food source, that changes how deer are going to relate to your property all the time. You know, I hear time and time again that the year that certain properties are in corn, oh man, we have fantastic hunting this year. Maybe, oh, we got terrible hunting. The deer are out in the corn all the time. And the year that the soybeans come in, I've heard you know, the exact opposites happen. You know, people say that, oh, it was in soybeans. We had great early season hunting or, you know, soybeans were here. We didn't have any cover. You know, you name it, it, it happens. And it, it's feast and then famine with, with crops. You, you plant soybeans. They're a fantastic plant for deer to consume when they're green and growing up high, growing up tall. Then they put pods on. Those leaves start to turn and then blah, there's nothing. Now, if there's you know, beans left out at a cold time of the year, they don't get harvested, or even if it's a bean food plot and they're left out, of course they'll eat pods in the very late part of the year. They need that energy, and, and that's a good source. And the same thing with corn. Corn is uh, fantastic cover all summer. Depending on your deer density, I've seen deer annihilate corn before it even got to tassel, but most of the time, you know, relative deer densities we got here in Pennsylvania <clears throat> you are seeing deer eat the silks and they're kind of staying in that corn hammered until it gets down to full maturity and they're eating the cobs. And the, the big thing and the re reason I say it's feast of famine is once that harvester goes through, a lot of people say, oh, they're coming out and they're picking up spilled grain. I'll be the first to tell you with today's harvesters, guys, there's, there's combines out there that are valued higher than a lot of the houses we live in and the the the, the heads and the systems that the, everything they got on there the efficiency of combines in the 21st century and in, in this day and age are so incredible while you will see deer in the you know that that week after harvest you will see them going out and getting spilled grain and you think it's a lot it does not last so if you have a field get harvested the first week of october of corn that might be all well and good for the for the beginning you might have some quick hunting strategy but what is going on the rest of that hunting season if that is just a fallow cornfield you see deer going out in cornfields in december and january and, and feeding in there you think oh man they're eating spilled grain most of the time they're really not if you dig around and you look what they're actually eating they're eating roughage leaves and they're eating any winter annuals that are coming up through they're eating chickweed or maybe a farmer planted a cover crop of rye or something and they're actually in that and while that's all well and good it just says there's so much unpredictable things going on there second when you take out when you look at farming today we see way more larger fields. You know, there was a time we had uh, contour strips, contour farming, and that was because of tillage. But you had a ton of strips on a farm, and they were varying. Hay, 
corn, soybeans, rye. Now it's not uncommon to see farms that 20, 30 years ago might have been in six, seven, eight strips. Now you're going to see farms in one, two, maybe even one field, 20, 30, 40, 50 acres, because we've gotten more efficient with our, our, our planting measures. It's fantastic for farmers because if they reduce edge, they reduce browse pressure on their crops. But it's terrible for wildlife. Think about all the edge when you had six strips of all kinds of different crops. You had a hay field, you had alfalfa, you had corn, beans. So many different edges and rolling around contours. It was kind of manageable. Plus the other thing you have to keep in mind is farming now... Let's think about hay for a second. Let's talk uh, turkeys and pheasants. That's a hot topic right now. It's always been because anybody that's that's listening to this and has experienced the the boom of pheasant hunting and small game hunting in Pennsylvania in the 70s, you know everybody I've known talks about how fantastic the pheasant hunting was. And then the the flip uh, flip of a switch in a few years, there was no pheasants. And there's a number of reasons for that, and I'll talk about some of the things why I, I why I'm confident we see decreasing uh, or we don't see pheasants. We see decreasing turkey populations in ag country, and uh, <clears throat> you know why we might see other other stuff along those lines. But the uh, the the thing I was talking about with hay is years ago a hay field hay fields often got cut a lot later than they do now. A lot of times, hay is getting cut somewhere in the first half of May. Now, I'm talking relative to where you're at in the state, and I'm in the southeastern part of the state, and you know our, our growing season is a few weeks ahead of, say, central and northern Pennsylvania. But it's all relative because of uh, you know of the, the the temperatures and everything going so. But so let's say our average time we're cutting alfalfa hay is May 10th down here. It might be May 20th in the northern part of the state. It's not a huge difference. Maybe it's May 25th. It's different every year. But <clears throat> think about that in respect to when turkeys are nesting. Uh, it was it it's not uncommon for birds to be and, and turkeys of course will nest. A lot of places. I was listening to a podcast with some biologists from the from the southern half of the country, talking about nesting habitat and brooding habitat. And you know, hens. There's really no, from what I've understood, there's really no scientific like data point that says this is what hens seek when they nest. They kind of nest a lot of different places and different habitats. But the brooding habitat, and what that is, is the, the, the young poults that are born, that is very important to have that, and have a large enough brooding area where they can have cover, and they can bug, and they can get seeds, and they can do all those things for poults to mature. That's really important. And a place that's a fantastic brooding habitat is an old hay field, mixed alfalfa, some warm season grasses. Maybe it's got some orchard grass in it. You know, maybe there's some some, some quote unquote weeds coming in the summertime. You start to get some ragweeds and some pigweeds, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. That's a perfect place for a hen. She'll lay her nest, and then it can be brooding. Well, if you're if you're mowing that early, think about how many nests and stuff. I, I am. I'll be the first to tell you, hen turkeys will sit on a nest, and watch their life flash before their eyes before they get mowed over by a disc spine. And, and that's the other thing, too. Think about the efficiency harvest. In the 70s, 
we were mowing our hay with a sickle bar mower. A sickle bar mower would just go right over top of the nest and it wouldn't affect it. We weren't mowing uh, quite as low as a lot of the hay fields that you see now. And there's all reason for this. It might sound bad from the wildlife perspective, but it's more efficient. It's allowing farmers to be more profitable. And I'm an, I'm an agronomist. I want farmers to be profitable. That is very, very important to me. But there's a double-edged sword with that. So the timing of the cutting and the efficiency of the cutting, disc binds, hay binds, man, they will kill fawns, they will kill turkeys, they will ruin nests, all because of that. The next thing, we talked about field size going down. Think about the fragmentation that has occurred across landscapes from, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way till today. You know, we talk about why are why are we seeing decreasing turkey populations or why is this small game population poor? Why aren't there any pheasants? Well, we consistently remove fence row after fence row because fence rows encroach on crop edges and reduce yield. So it's natural that we want to reduce that and create less edge, less competition for crops to maximize our yields. And that is reducing the amount of cover and the, the amount of edge, the amount of diversity. Uh, with, with, with some of that, you get, uh, another thing that most people don't even know about. It's becoming a little bit more common knowledge is, uh, seed treatments. You know, I, when I make planting recommendations for guys, most of their corn and soybean and sorghum, you know, even alfalfa seed and the clover seed you buy in your food plot, they've got seed treatments. And some of those seed treatments have different things on them. And there's a reason for those seed treatments because they can help reduce stress on young plants and potentially increase yield for farmers. Some of the the stresses you have would be early season disease, cool, wet. You get, uh, you know, root diseases when when it stays wet, too wet, too long. But another thing is insects. We have uh, all sorts of different insects, grubs, and uh, worms, and certain things that will attack our plants. And you know, you got to keep in mind if a farmer puts down a set amount of of corn in his field, let's say he sets a population of thirty-two thousand plants per acre, and he drops down two thousand plants per acre because of insects or grubs or something like that, that is a significant yield reduction for his crops. And what's an easy, cheap insurance way to combat that? If they put seed treatment on that has an insecticide on it. Now, insecticides, while they have their, their rightful place and we use them appropriately in agriculture and I try to make the recommendations in the right situations but a lot of seed treatment nowadays it just comes with a, an insecticide a neonic insecticide and I'm I'm kind of sticking my head out a little bit I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because I'm very pro farming and I want to support farmers but I do see this as a potential problem so uh, soybeans uh, often have an insecticidal treatment on the seed Think about a planter going through and, and furrows being open, or a, a drill going through and the furrow is open, and uh, a turkey's able to see those seeds and pick those seeds out. I have seen pictures of gobblers killed in the spring with a crop full of soybeans, and they were all treated seed. Now think about that. An insecticide is a poison. 
that that cannot be something that we can. I mean, insecticides are one of the most deadly things. I've I've heard of people literally having children that licked a jug that had insecticide. I'm not talking about drinking it. Licked the jug and killed them. I mean, it's powerful, powerful stuff not to be messed with. And if you've got turkeys eating seed with seed treatment on, that cannot be something healthy. Let's let's look at uh, insecticides from the perspective of killing bugs. You know, you kill bugs. There's dead bugs laying in the seat. Well, turkeys love to bug. If they're if they're bugging in those fields and they, you know, they pick up a dead bug that was killed by an insecticide. Now they're ingesting that. Think about that from small poults, uh, a very small young <clears throat> young bird that's ingesting that. I, I don't have the scientific data that's saying this is what's happening, but to me, it makes sense that this can't be a positive. I'm not saying this is the the reason why you have this, but just think about everything we said. We've got less habitat. We've got more fragmentation. We've got more developments and broken habitats and less field edges. We don't have hay fields as long, less diversity in fields. We don't have as much old field conversion like we're going to talk about here shortly. Um, you know, insecticides, and of course, with prey populations start to bo- started to to boom at certain points, predator populations are up. We have higher predator populations in in most of the country than we ever have, and you know that's part of it. I don't blame that. You know, and you know, pheasants. I know everybody talks about the avian flu that came through, and you know, maybe you know, maybe there's definitely some some validity to that but you would think that we'd be able to have birds come back and i think there's a lot of reasons but uh, agriculture is another one i think those are things that get overlooked um one one, last thing i'm going to say about this and then i'm going to shut my mouth and get into the the meat and potatoes of old field conversion and, and making good habitat is you have uh a lot of seed companies will give leftover seed to wildlife groups you know there's there's plenty of agencies that will take this discounted seed so you can plant it in food plots and i just want to caution everybody and think about that is that the right move you're going to save a little bit of money on seed you know maybe it drops from 95 percent germ to 85 or lower but is that something that you want to have for your food plots and i would kind of argue that no i don't really think you do for for all the reasons we just discussed so hopefully that gives you some some food for thought in in that realm of things but getting into field conversion and why you would convert fields and and not have them in food plots well first of all converting old fields there's a lot of native plants out there that can grow a lot of groceries and cover and browse and all the things you need for wildlife and it's just a matter of letting them grow and promoting them. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is CREP or CRP or whatever whatever you want to call it. That is a program that often gets utilized. There's a lot of places in the state that uh, farming as agriculture, animal agriculture kind of decreased in certain portions of the state and maybe uh, fields got overgrown and you know people were looking for an option to you know, get some money out of it because maybe the farming reduced in that area. You know, fields went into crap. You get a 10, 20 year program and you get paid per acre. And maybe some of you have had your fields at crep and crep has its place, but crep was designed for soil restoration. It was, it was made to have, um, you know, 
soil be relaxed and have warm season grasses grow and kind of rejuvenate that soil and, and allow deep roots to happen and you know give it a break from farming. Now there's some wildlife benefit to it, but I had uh, I had some people that talked about putting crep into their property because that's they thought that was the ticket that that was going to make awesome wildlife habitat. And man, I cringe at that. And there's a reason for that. It, again, it's it's really hard to describe in any case. It it just kind of just takes how tuning your eyes and getting some experience and seeing it. But there's a lot of times where just planting straight grass it is not the the right thing and what you need, especially if you're looking to do it on your property with the mindset of holding deer, but other wildlife too. And I'll explain why. Grass is grass is grass, and with these crep programs, what I mean by that is. Switch grass is often uh, a, a seed that's in the mix. You might have Indian grass, big blue stem, little blue stem. There's a couple other types of grasses that will commonly be in those mixes. And if you have the seeding rate appropriate and it's not too thick, it can be good summer cover and it can be brooding habitat or, or cover for birds and stuff like that. But depending on what the surrounding area is like and depending on how our winters go and, and the seeding rates and stuff like that, a lot of that's going to lay down in the wintertime. If it lays down in the wintertime, what is the most critical, vulnerable thing for uh, young critters and small game or you know, first-year turkey poults or you know, young rabbits or anything like that? If that cover that they had as a mecca is gone... At the coldest time when, when predators are going to find them most vulnerable and they don't have other good quality cover, they're going to die or they're going to vacate your property at least. And you are kind of in a headlock when you put your property into crep. Um, a lot of people, I think, out east, you know, there, there's a lot of places in the Midwest that have crep and major widespread grassland areas. And they hold a lot of deer, and and it's quality bedding. And now you've got companies that sell this bedding in a bag, a a seed blend that is just different grasses, and it's just it's this it's the end all be all. You got to have it on your property. Think about the context of locations. Now I haven't spent a ton of time in the Midwest. But I do know a lot of the places in the Midwest where that is really, really successful, they have no cover. There's no trees. There's no fence rows. There's minimal any of that. And you've got these wide swaths of standing grasses. And sometimes they get rank and you get other stuff that comes up in them. And it's it's the best available cover. Now think back east. We, we have... You know, we have a lot of deciduous and conifer forests. We got mountains. We got a lot of ag fragmentation. We don't have those big swaths of fields. Uh, we got a lot more diversity, so to speak. And there is better bedding and cover in certain parts of our state than in the Midwest. And that's, in my opinion, I think that's one of the reasons why those grasses dominate so well out there. So then you kind of have to ask yourself, what is quality bedding? Like when you think of bedding, what attributes are in there for me bedding has to have cover it has to have standing cover has to be standing all the time and be able to hide predators from them and 
elements and stuff like that. But it also has to have brows. It also has to have food. There has to be a component of diversity. Remember I said grass is grass is grass. You know, blue stem, Indian grass, all that stuff. It's different species of grass, but it's grass. Diversity is when you've got grass, shrubs, early succession plants, young trees, medium-sized trees, old trees, deciduous trees, coniferous trees, swampland, bottom. Like, that's diversity. Think about all that edge in one property. There's a lot of diversity. You're probably going to hold a lot of wildlife. So, all that said, you know, keep that in mind when I'm when I'm going to give you this example of a property that um, I helped transform into kind of a better wildlife habitat setup um, I I helped somebody design this field they were going to put it in crep they had set this field up for for deer hunting this is a deer hunting property and Instead of being in a headlock with crep and not being able to plant food plots in the locations you wanted and and promote the species that you wanted, I recommended that we get a straight switch grass, something that's going to be fairly winter hardy at our <clears throat> at our latitude and and stand all year. And another common thing you'll hear people say with switchgrasses you only want to seed it at three or four pounds but you you plant the whole entire field at that three to four pounds so it's not too thick and things can move through it and i've i've kind of shied away from that i got a recommendation from somebody else and that's why i i've gone a different way with it and this is how i've i've gone about it i i planted this had him plant the switchgrass at 10 pounds per acre which sounds really high anybody who's a switchgrass guy or a, a native seeds grass uh native grass guy and and knows that seeds i, I know it's high I, i'm gonna get you know probably hate mail for that but when you have uh, uh strips of grass and kind of conform to different edges and stuff i had the base cover set so the the field that we're talking about, I want you to, if, if you're looking at an aerial image, the center of this property is all cropland. And then you've got a uh, 20, 30 acre section on the east end of the property that is creek bottom, deciduous forest, hardwoods, woodland. And the same thing on the west end of the property. Actually, I flip-flopped the directions. The west end of the property is the 30-some acre section. The east end of the property is probably 10 to 15 acres. It's significantly smaller. Same bottom land, creek bottom, deciduous forest. But there was a 7-acre field directly to the west of that section. So we're talking about the east end of the property. Property. We had great hunting out here, but we wanted to try to improve and hold more deer on this end of the property. So we, he's still using a farmer to uh, farm most of his property, but we took the seven-acre field back. And we set. he had stands set for appropriate wind directions. So we built this field around that. So the first thing we did, we had a farmer come in that had a 10 foot, uh, actually a 12 foot grain drill and planting switchgrass at 10 pounds per acre. The first thing we did is we planted the entire perimeter of the field. 
And the reason for that, I wanted to have a good screen for the farmer, or yeah, for the farmer, for the hunter to be able to get to his stand, climb into his stand, and not be seen and, and not have to worry about seeing. He wouldn't be able to see into the field and into the food plot section until he was sitting in his stand. That way, nothing could bust him getting in and out. It was foolproof access. Plus, the other thing I wanted to do is there's some places where neighboring areas could see into the field. I wanted to block that off. And I also wanted to have deer not be able to see other deer. I, I think when, uh, especially think about it in rut times, uh, you know, buck comes cruising through. If he looks from one end of the food plot at the other, he can't see anything. It's less likely he's going to come in, you know, past your stand if he's on a different route. And the, uh, you know, another thing I think a lot of deer were trying to hold and pull deer in. I think a lot of deer can create a stressful atmosphere. So if you kind of fragment it a little bit, I think it just reduces stress. But anyway, we did that. And then we, we outlined a food plot of the seven acres, about an acre and a half of food plot was stretched out across the, the length of this, this field. And it allowed two stand locations. We funneled it down to uh, a larger section at one stand location and funneled it up to another section that was larger at that stand location. Allowed multiple wind directions and the switchgrass lines, it's kind of hard to see in one section to the other. It kind of allows a good flow through the property. So now we had that line. It's kind of like an hourglass food plot on the west edge of that field. Now you've got the rest of this, I'm going to say five acres left. And it was not a completely flat field. There's a lot of contour and hills and, and rolls and stuff like that in it. So we had the farmer go across all the high points on the contours and no sharp edges. And what I mean by that is no like straight, perfect windrow. I literally had him just drive the tractor with the drill down and zigzag in circles all over and creating soft edges that would be a base form of cover. And, and the result, when you look at it from an aerial imagery, it's just a bunch of zigzag lines of switchgrass. Now they all point to that food plot. So we got 50% switchgrass in this fallow area, and the other section is just that. We left it go fallow. Now, one of the things we, we want to try to promote, and I said earlier, I want to try to promote good quality brows. I want, I'd love to be able to get some quality briars, brambles, you know, shrubbery type stuff and get some of that woody brows element into it. I, I prefer that it wasn't a summertime brows of like just like pigweeds and stuff like that because those are going to die off and then it's going to be a less attractive area. So to try to speed that process up of succession, what I had the, had the landowner do was cut some trees, uh, large trees, trees that were not fruit bearing and, and were just probably creating a shade you know, element to the rest of the field. Had him cut them down and he, has a, uh, he had a backhoe. And he drug trees and sporadically placed them in the middle, you know, in sections of the fallow land in, in that switchgrass block. And the reason for doing something like that is, first of all, it's an immediate side cover. Now, I know it's like a, it's a dead log. It's not really a ton of side cover, but it is side cover. And it's, it's placed there immediately. But the cool thing about doing that is when you have a large treetop and 
you, you think about how a big tree falls over, steer will go into it and kind of nip stuff as it grows up, but what it basically made was big utilization cages. So it's preventing deer. Deer are lazy. They're going to take the path of least resistance, and it's creating a, an area for birds to go in and nest in that deadfall and treetops. And what are birds going to do? They're going to eat raspberries and blackberries and all the quality stuff that you would want to have in this situation. They're going to have their nests in there, and they're going to defecate those seeds out and hopefully have a utilization cage to get those those briars and brambles and all that good stuff established. So in theory, we're going to have base switchgrass and in hopefully a relatively short amount of time, and I say relatively short amount of time, I'm hoping within five years we start to see that stuff establish. And, you know, the rest of it, we've just got your typical weeds. You know, maybe over time we'll get some goldenrod in there. Right now it's dominating in kind of uh, mare's tail and some grasses like that. And it's it taken some maintenance to try to get the bad stuff out. There's some foxtail in sections we got to work on. But that gives you kind of a base. And I'll, I'll tell you, in, in the first year, we saw some positive things. You know, the landowner told me, he said, we had some great hunts. We saw a lot of deer. They'd filter out of that switchgrass area. Maybe they were browsing in there a little bit. Maybe some of them did lay in there in year one. You know, the switchgrass did get about three to four feet tall. It was uh, was not quite as thick as I'd hoped it to be. It got planted a little bit later than uh, switchgrass would typically get planted. It didn't get, didn't get to go through a full stratification process. But it was... Uh, it was year number one, and I am fully expecting year number two to just absolutely blow up. And I'm hoping year number two in the fallow section blows up. Now, some people would say, well, why wouldn't you just forget about the switchgrass and just make it go 100% fallow? And there's places where that will work, and I think it's relative to how many how much cropland, how much field are you taking back? If you're just doing like this and it was just a seven acre field, the rest of it surrounding is cropland and small patches of woodland, I think what's going to happen then is you're going to get a lot of summertime weeds that come up and then in the fall and winter they're going to die off and lay down and you're not going to have any cover and you're not going to have any any hunting season food. And I, I, that's bad. Now, maybe if you've got large acreages, you can fragment it you could do some switchgrass you could do some fallow you could do some all fallow and mix it whatever that looks like it like i said very hard to gauge and explain especially in a podcast when to when to cater in each situation but it, it's all relative to your property the the habitats and what your uh, the the surrounding area habitat and what your goals actually are um so yeah that's kind of my my, my logic behind old field conversion and trying to make good quality habitat. Uh, another thing I want to tell you about that most people don't know, getting back into the CREP, uh, CRP, whatever you want to call it, you know, that's a, that is a good cost share program. It has its place. There's, there's definitely some cases where properties could use CREP, have it be a solid stand of grass. And that might be an area that is, uh, kind of like a no deer zone let's say you need an area for windbreaker um you know or a, a place to blow your wind into for your property or maybe you need to set up access and that's what i was getting at with this next thing the crep program actually has a section for field borders so you can actually get paid to reduce your 
your field size and put grassland cover as a border. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it is a minimum of 30 feet wide, maximum of 120 feet wide. So for you know for most drills, you'd go three passes around the entire length of the field, and you've got uh, an installed buffer. And you know we're not going to talk about how to how to actually do that and implement it. There's a lot of information out there, but the the thing I think is really really cool about that is there's properties that. If you do that, you just created a highway for your access. You, you could have screen cover access. Now, the thing I have to mention, depending on uh, your your NRCS agent, cost share stuff, I think you have to really manipulate your seating rate or try to convince them to manipulate your seating rate to what you need. For example, uh, I, I think it's probably lighter on switchgrass. And I personally would want it to be as much switchgrass as possible because I'd like something that stands, you know, at least six feet tall, stands in the wintertime, and is giving me cover that I can maneuver around a property. But, uh, you know, you could be getting paid to set up your own access in your property. Uh, depending on how your property... There's, there's one property in particular I'm, I'm talking about, I'm thinking of that uh, I'm, I'm going to try to have this landowner implement this because he's going to get paid for it and it's, it's, it's just a win-win situation. It really is. Now, I'll tell you, if you have somebody farming your property right now and you tell a farmer, hey, you know, I'm really thinking about putting some of my property in crap or putting field borders on... I can tell you firsthand, that's really not going to make them very happy. Not just for the fact that they're losing land, but as a farmer, it's kind of a pain to have a grass on your on your field edge to plant around and to spray around. You know, <coughs> excuse me, they have to. Uh, they're going to have to be careful with their with their sprayer to not overlap into your your crep grass and and kill it. And that just makes for a pain in the neck, difficult farming. And it's not going to be something real, real popular. But I, I still say if it's your property and you pay the taxes on it, you should be able to manage it how you want. Um, I think one of the last things I'll leave you with when it comes to ag land and property, I, I wanted to vote for me personally. Um, I don't own very large properties. I mean, I have my property at my house, which is very small that I do some tinkering on. If if I'm ever able to buy a piece of land for hunting purposes and, and for habitat and stuff like that, I definitely want to have a property scaled to being able to improve it and do something to that. What I mean is I don't want to buy a property that let's say it's 50% woodland, 50% cropland, I don't want to be forced to have to have a farmer pay me um, pay me to farm his land and, and re, like require that money so I can afford the land. Because if you have it, it to me it's just wasted land. You know, if you have a hundred acre property, fifty of it's cropland, you need to have one hundred percent of that that cropland as cropland and get the money for that. I, to me, I could have bought a fifty acre property. Like you know, what, does that make sense? Like, I I, I want to be able to, I guess, have my cake and eat it too. But 
be able to have money left over to make the improvements that are going to cater to my hunting and cater to my goals of quality habitat, quality hunting. But uh, with the CREP program, again, you know, going into a field, you're really in a headlock by the government. You're not going to be able to do a ton of manipulation that's positive for for hunting you know uh, again i scale back to what my goals are i'm trying to shoot the best buck in the neighborhood and i'd like to do it with my bow and if i'm not able to create pinch points create food sources and you know do all the things that we talk about in high efficiency hunting strategy if we can't do that on a portion of your field because it's in a government enrolled program to me it's almost like you're you're at a loss you're wasting a portion of that property and that's just a big disadvantage and the other thing too you know i i kind of emphasize that property layout of the switchgrass 50 50 fallow and the trees in the field i emphasize that for deer but it's really it it really it's going to be better for everything it's going to be good for rabbits it's going to be good for squirrels it's going to be good for certain types of birds um, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, this, this landowner told me, I don't think he's ever seen a turkey on his property. Now there's turkeys in his general area. I'm hoping that in a few years, he tells me he sees some turkeys on his property. I don't know if the seven acres is going to be enough, but Hey, it's, it would still be cool to tell me we're doing something in the right direction. And the reason I think it's good is because you got base cover and the rest of it is not too thick for young poults and rabbits and stuff like that to maneuver through it. I've seen some crep fields and grass fields that were so thick with rank warm season grasses that nothing could get through it. No no young poult wants to go into that. And think about it in terms of when it gets hot. You got all that thick insulation there and it's so thick to get through and it's so heat that, that's not an environment that's quality. But if you've got diversity, you've got you know young plants uh succulent plants and broad leaves and and maybe some bra- woody woody regeneration and, and then you've got switchgrass that's kind of lines of cover and it is thermo you know regulating for certain times of year all that edge and diversity that is like the ticket in my opinion because it's got everything they would need from cover and food and and all the above so I'm hoping that that was something that you can take away from. I think it's something pretty relevant to this time of year. This is something that you could be <coughs> you could be implementing on your property this year. You know, maybe uh, and it, you know maybe it's too late. Maybe you've already worked out your lease with uh, the guy that's farming your land. Um, maybe you're you're you already enrolled in crep and it's too late. And I apologize for that. Maybe you've got. Uh, a section of field that you put crep in a, uh, a number of years ago and it didn't turn out the way you thought it would be. You didn't see the response that you thought you would for wildlife. And as your your contract comes up, you have an option of how you can manage that field. And, uh, you know, one of the cool things with crep in that sense is maybe you have some good quality switchgrass that stays standing and all you got to do is kill some of the grasses in sections and try to promote new browse and new regeneration in there. Maybe you have a farmer farm it for a year or two or three and kind of kill the grasses out, and then you implement something different. Uh, make sure you scale it to the property. Make sure you, you, you're thinking about what is the, the need in this general area. You know, if you have 
a uh, a seven acre field in uh, you know northern Pennsylvania that's surrounded by woods and it's just one seven acre field. Um, you know, it's surrounded by monotonous cover. You know, I, in that case, I'd really think about making as much food as possible because food and young succulent plants are probably a limiting factor. And uh, you, you know, another thing I think about too, I, I mentioned the bedding in the bag, this this perfect seed blend that's just absolutely perfect. I think there's places in Pennsylvania that that would actually be fantastic cover. And I can think places that I work in the southeastern part of the state that is just 100% dominated by people and agriculture. It's just flat land and it's quality ag. And uh, again, I'm, I'm not trying to sway people from taking farmland out. Uh, I, I'm 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 very pro farmer. I'm very pro farming. Support farmers. Shake a farmer's hand because they work their tail off for us, and that's a big deal. I'm I'm just talking from perspective of wildlife and making good quality hunting. And uh, you know when you've got no other quality cover, uh, a bedding in a bag type mix with warm season grasses that would be the only cover in the area, and that would hold wildlife. Um, kind of my perspective on just geographical difference and habitat differences and types. So, hey, that's my uh, that's my spiel for today. Uh, I'm gonna cut this off, and we're gonna hopefully find some turkeys. I am turkey. I, I feel like when I was when I was younger, I would be full scale, just like ready for turkeys. I mean, it would be like deer season closed in January. And cabin fever hit me hard February, marching into April. I just wanted to get out and turkey hunt all that time. And now I guess with life and different goals and, you know, just more active in certain uh, other things, <clears throat> I don't get quite as fired up for that long. But now that it's like right here in Among Us, now I'm ready to go. Like I, I've been hearing some birds, different places. I've been seeing turkeys. And I, I'm I'm hoping that I could find some birds and, you know, get one fired up and just because there's something about a, a Tom fired up and coming in and seeing him strutting. You guys know if you're turkey hunters, you know that that is fun and it's something special. So wherever you find yourself out in creation this week, guys, um, I, I hope you enjoy yourself uh, fishing, hunting, hiking or whatever it is. Last thing I'd like to ask you guys is if you could do me a big favor and wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcast or, or wherever that platform is, uh, please, you know, like, subscribe, you know, leave a comment, you know, give us a, a rating, all that stuff that goes on. Uh, it really helps out our show, and if you like the information we're talking about for uh, for Pennsylvania and for the Northeast and for all things outdoors, um, please do that. It, it's a it's a big help, and and we would greatly appreciate it. Um, I thank you for all the support and the messages and comments that we got. Uh, feel free to reach out to us, uh, Instagram, uh, Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast, and and the same thing on on Facebook. Uh, feel free to reach out to us. Our, our email's there, and we'd love to hear from you. And, and if you've got something you'd like to share with us on the show, uh, you know, drop us a comment, drop us a, a PM, and, and we'll try to make that happen. So, hey, have a good week, guys. We'll see you.